Hey, really good to see you today. I wonder if you could just do me a, a favor. Thirty uh, odd years, thirty something, nearly forty years ago, I started in ministry back in the UK as an assistant pastor. And my first senior pastor, a man by the name of uh, Pastor Gordon Neal, uh, he was my my first pastor or mentor, if you like, in ministry. Gordon is now a member of the national leadership team of the Elam churches in the UK. And he's a regional superintendent overseeing over a hundred and something churches. Uh, But more than that, over the years, he's been a great friend and a mentor. And he's here this weekend over there. So would you greet my friend, Pastor Gordon Neal? Stand up, Gordon. Give us a wave. I don't know why it is, but when your old boss shows up, everything goes wrong. And about an hour. How many would like to know an inside story from Timberline? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you don't give a rip? Okay. About an hour ago, I managed to spill half a cup of coffee down my shirt. Oh, praise the Lord, I cried. Well, hey, we are continuing this mysterious connection series. We are looking at this letter uh, to the church in Ephesus. If you're not familiar with the, uh, the letter, it's written by a guy who was under house arrest uh, on death row, although he may not have known that. And he's writing uh, to uh, a church that he spent some time with, around three years personally, with the church in Ephesus. And so as we continue this series, we're thinking this weekend about this question. What really Matters. What really matters? Let's jump in. Have a look with me at Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 15. Ever since I first heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere, I have not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly, asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you may grow, you might grow in your knowledge of God. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he called his holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now... He is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. And the church is his body. It is made full and complete by Christ, who fills everything with, fills all things everywhere with himself. Uh, Over the years of being here, Timberline, I've told you frequently that I am one of those sad men who gets lost everywhere I go. I've been so grateful for the invention of GPS and the devil woman inside that thing who tells me where I'm supposed to go. But notwithstanding that, I am still continuously lost. Ladies, I I hope you'll be impressed. I am one of those men who is willing to stop and ask for directions and, and, and help. Yeah, appreciate that wave of enthusiasm there. That's beautiful. Let me let you down immediately by telling you that when I do stop and ask for directions, the person is telling me, turn left, second right, third left, I think, this is really boring. 
And I continue to be lost because I get bored with listening. I'm lost all the time. In fact, uh, yesterday, this is so embarrassing, I went to Walmart between Fort Collins and Loveland and actually managed to get lost on the way home. (laughs) It's just a gift, that's what I say. Sometimes when I look around our culture, it feels like we are a... A bewildered, lost culture. The sociologists would describe where we're at right now that we are postmodern as a culture. There is no meta-narrative, they say. What does that mean? What it means is that we have become, we have, we become impoverished in that we no longer have a core story which serves as the foundation for the way that we live. We don't have a story anymore. And when you lose story, you lose meaning. And when you lose meaning, you lose purpose and you end up playing trivia pursuit with your life. Neil Postman, who wrote famously some years ago, he he talked in his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, about even the reality that television news these days can be packaged and presented in such a way with the peppy music at the beginning and the commercials halfway through, and as Postman described it, the announcements of what's happening in the news by the talking hairdos, as he somewhat maybe unkindly described it, he's saying we have lost connection with what really, really matters. Ted Koppel, the veteran American broadcaster and newscaster, won Broadcaster of the Year in 1986. And prior to the widespread use of the internet, he said, we have become so obsessed with facts that we have lost touch with truth. Almost everything that is publicly said these days is recorded, and almost nothing of what is said is worth remembering. (laughs) Novelists, writers, philosophers, thinkers have tried to peer into the future to predict something of what we are living in today. One of them was George Orwell. You read the book maybe in school, 1984. And then Aldous Huxley, who wrote Brave New World. George Orwell got it wrong. Huxley got it right. Orwell said that books would be banned. Huxley said there'd be no reason to ban a book. Orwell said we'd be deprived of information. And Huxley said we would have information overload. Anyone checked Google recently and suddenly find yourself in the, in the face of an avalanche of information? Orwell said that truth would be concealed, and Huxley said that truth would be drowned by irrelevance. Orwell said we'd be a captive culture. Huxley said we'd be a trivial culture. And as we think about these things and look around us, it simply isn't good enough For us to continue to go to work, to get the money, to buy the food, to give us the strength, to go to work, to get the money, to buy the food, to give us the strength, to stay on the conveyor belt and just go through life at speed, endlessly distracted by our technology. We've got to ask the question, what really matters? What really matters? And here in Ephesians, I believe that Paul, as he prays for the church there, that he can really help us. Because you see, that which really matters to you, you pray about the most, right? Remember, here is a man under house arrest. Nero is in his palace. Fearful guy. Terrifying man. It's interesting what Paul doesn't 
ask for prayer about or doesn't really pray about himself. He doesn't say, oh, by the way, Ephesians, uh, it's kind of scary here, so I'm really not going to pray for you. Would you pray for me that I get out of jail free? He doesn't say, Ephesians, I'm praying for those mean people who hate you in Ephesus that you'll have a quieter life. No, he doesn't say those things. Rather, what he does pray for indicates something of what really, really matters. So let's follow along. If you're following in the bulletin, let's, let's take a closer look. Number one, what really matters? What really matters is that we're people of faith and love. We are people of faith and love. Verse 15, ever since I first heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere, Paul says. This is a, this is a common theme, if you will, in the Apostle Paul's writings. And so elsewhere, writing to the churches in Galatia, he says that what is important is faith expressing itself in love. The word for love here. Agape, it's, the, it's that sacrificial love of God expressed through God's people. Uh, Calvin, the great reformer, said, Observe here that under faith and love, Paul sums up the whole perfection of Christians. But the, 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 the trouble is, sometimes we Christians aren't that good at mingling faith and love. Now, I, I, I know, this, I, I'm looking around here, there's no mean people here, I, I know that. And, and, you know, we, we, this is Timberline. We, we, we don't even gossip here. We share. <laughs> but have you ever met a mean Christian? I mean, you know, it's like a buzzard with a Bible. You ever met one of those? <laughs> I mean, they've got, they got faith. You're impressed by their faith. You just, you don't want to have lunch with them. Never mind sit next to them in eternity. They're kind of mean. When I was first started pastoring, there was a guy in our church, he really, he really didn't like me at all, so he wanted me to know it. So when I got up to preach, this guy used to get up, pick up his chair, and turn around and face the wall. <laughs> he had this kind of gift of subtlety, really. And then when I'd finished preaching, he'd pick up his chair and, don't you even think about it, right? <laughs> I'm watching. Just... Mean. On the internet this week, the news of another disastrous ministerial uh, fall, another, another immoral piece of news of immorality. And you know what really sickened me? That saddens me. But what sickened me was the carping Christians on the internet. Some of them saying, praise the Lord, he's fallen. Dear God, help us. What is it that can turn us into carping Mean people. And here's a weird thought. I've discovered that sometimes the more people are intense about their faith, the meaner they get. You say, Pastor Jeff, I can't believe you just said that. Give us an example. Here we go. Pharisees. Oh, wow. They were intense. They prayed two hours a day. Had endless conversations about doctrine and Old Testament. And were pretty happy to be part of a conspiracy to kill an innocent man. In fact, here's the thought. Sometimes what happens is that people of faith stop being loving people, and then here's what they do. They start using their faith to be unloving. You ever met a Christian like that? And here the Apostle Paul is saying there's something different here for us. 
Jonathan Swift, himself a pastor, he said, we have just enough religion to make us hate, but not enough to make us love one another. Have we got faith without love? Do people at your workplace, do they know that you're the Bible guy? But they haven't felt too much love lately. Secondly, what really matters? What really matters is that grateful prayer is our habit. What matters is that grateful prayer is our habit. Paul says again, 15, verse 15, Ever since I first heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere, I have not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly. Do you know that in everyday life people lie quite a bit? Nice people tell lies quite a lot. Here's a few lies that we commonly tell. I'm fine. Wow, you haven't changed a bit. The check is in the mail. That looks so good on you. Here's one. I have read and agreed to the above terms and conditions. Oh, caught you. Come forward right now. Don't worry, it will be okay. No problem. Here's another one. Praying for you. And we say it so easily, don't we? And we forget. Jesus assured Peter of his prayers. He prayed. The Apostle Paul is preoccupied by telling his friends that he prays for them. To the Romans, Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, Philemon. I'm praying for you. And not not only is he praying, but he shows us something about how we should pray. With gratitude. He says, I'm thankful for you and I'm praying for you. That's a big picture piece of health for prayer generally. Thankfulness with request. That's a great way of praying But he's also encouraging them as he's praying. Do you know it's possible to tell someone that you're praying for them and be mean about it? I'm praying for you! But the Apostle Paul doesn't do that. There's gratitude and thanksgiving. What really matters? That we have grateful prayer as something core in our lives. Number three, what really matters? That we're growing in our knowledge of God. That we're growing in our knowledge of God. I'm asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. This is fascinating, I think, because when you leave somewhere, you you might have a final speech that you make before you leave because you want to say what's really important. Five years earlier, the Apostle Paul, having spent three years in Ephesus, he gave a final speech. And look what he says, Acts 20:32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. He says it five years earlier, but he's, he's, he's like a broken record, wonderfully. He won't stop saying it. He's saying, keep growing. Keep being built up. Jews very often prayed for a growing knowledge of Scripture. The Apostle Paul goes beyond that and he prays that they will have this personal knowledge of God. I wonder what our major ambition is. People were surveyed uh, recently. They said, what's your major ambition in life? Here's some. Being financially secure. Traveling the world. 
Having a family, doing something selfless, having a successful career, getting married, living abroad, owning a pet. We had a cat once and it left home in disgust. (laughs) It's not important right now. Learning another language, starting your own company, owning a dream home. What is the Apostle Paul's surpassing ambition? That I might know him, he says. And he uses the word... It's rooted in the Hebrew word yada, which is the word used to describe the physical union between husband and wife. Wow. And that's not weird. What Paul is saying is, I just want you to keep growing in your knowledge of God. The word for knowledge in the New Testament is is normally gnosis. Uh, But Paul says here, I want you to have epignosis, epic knowledge, growing knowledge of God. Now, I need to be careful with this because sometimes preachers give the impression that knowing God is a bit like knowing another human being, and it's not. I did not wake up this morning, do a triple backflip out of bed, catching my tambourine as I flew through the air. And I said, hello, Lord. And he said, hello, Jeff. And I said, how are you, Lord? And he said, I'm, uh, I'm, it's good, I'm, I'm God. <laughs> and I said, uh, what shall I wear today? And he said, you know, wear that kind of, you know, that sort of noisy shirt. But, uh, by the way, Jeff, watch out for the coffee, you know, make sure. I'm not being irreverent here. I'm just telling you that some Christians give the impression that they just have this ongoing dialogue with God constantly. And it used to freak me out because I wanted Wi-Fi and I had dial-up AOL. Anyone remember dial-up AOL? All that electronic puking noise. You know, you'd, you'd go in and... That was good, wasn't it? Yeah. I did, my, I did my course. You too can do an electronic impersonation. I worked on that, baby. I wanted dial-up. I didn't want dial-up. I wanted Wi-Fi. And I felt inferior because I had kind of dial-up with God. And I, sometimes I don't know whether it's God talking to me. Does anyone else go through this? You've got a major decision. You can't figure out what's the Lord saying. And is that God? Is that the devil? Is that the flesh? Is that last night's pizza? What's going on here? Anyone else identify with that? I don't want to put up a false impression about what knowing God is like because it always is by faith. But are we still growing? What have we learned about God lately? As we journal, as we reflect, as we fellowship, as we study scripture, as we take time out to think, to pray, are we, are we getting more acquainted with him? Here's a way of knowing if you're growing. When's the last time you figured out you made a mistake and when's the last time you learned something? Yesterday morning in our house we had a bit of a crisis because my computer started being naughty. And this was a major challenge. I spent about an hour and a half trying to work it out. I got on the internet. I got on those forums and asked all those questions. And it was, and I was getting more and more frustrated. And then Pastor Gordon came into my study. And uh, now I, I've got to tell you, close your ears, Gordon. Technologically, I wouldn't, he wouldn't be the first person I would turn to. I mean, he has a computer, but it's driven by horses walking in a circle. You know, it's... So I'm sitting there, I'm feeling frustrated, and I'm like, what have I got to do with it? And he said, he said, he said, I I don't suppose you thought about just turning it off and turning it on again. (laughs) 
And outwardly, you know, because I try and be nice, I, I, outwardly I went, oh, right, yeah, yeah, good, yeah. Go feed the horse, you know. But inwardly I thought, pa, which is Hebrew for go away, stupid person. Anyway, he said, you know, he said, I probably need, he says, nothing more irritating than someone, you know, trying to help you when you're, so he went to get a cup of tea. And I thought, I'll just try turning it off and on again. And it worked! I thought I knew. You know, some of the most dangerous Christians I've ever met are the ones who just feel like they've got to that place. I, 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 I know. You can't ever correct. You can't ever reflect. You can't even say, have you thought? No, no. And then they've got the perfect backup. Yeah, well, God's told me. Well, let's shut the conversation down right now. No, are we still growing? Are we still growing in our knowledge of God? Finally, what really matters, number four, that our hearts will know what we have. That our hearts will know what we have. Hope, value, and power. Paul says, I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he called. His holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. Now, the Apostle Paul is talking about hope. I love hope. I love being around, are you like me? I like being around positive, hopeful people. I need to be careful here because British people tune into this on the internet. So I'm going to have to be careful about what I say. And I know I'm going to get emails for what I'm about to say. But I'm doing this for you, Timberline. In Britain, sorry to say this, but we, we can be supernaturally gifted at being negative. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a national thing. It's a hobby. You know, you say to a British person, how are you doing? They say, not too bad. Not to, I, want, I just want to grab them by the ears and say, how about, good, there's a thought. Or, or I'll say, how are you doing? They'll say, I can't complain. I'm thinking, I know you're, you're thinking, I really wish I could, but I just can't think of anything right now. I'm sure there's something perfectly horrible around the corner. And I love, I, 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 forgive me, I, I love Americans because it's, have a nice day. Bless your heart. And you ask for a cheeseburger and you're speaking over my day. I love that. Some British people, you say, have a nice day. They'll say, I'll have whatever kind of day I want. Thank you. <laughs> but you see, Paul is not just talking about being positive culturally. There is fuel for his hope. And there's fuel in two things. First of all, what is? And secondly, uh, ultimately what will be in terms of, well, but actually, it's both current. First, it's inheritance. He says, it's remarkable, he says, his holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. That's amazing. God has got lots of stuff. Like the universe. You know what this says? This says, you're 
We are his priceless inheritance. Ma'am, you know that guy that told you when you were growing up that you were trash? And then maybe you started acting like trash because you thought you were, so what's the use? This Bible tells me that in Christ we are his inheritance. And not only that, there's a future dimension to that. And that is that we are his inheritance. And Colossians says we will have an inheritance. It's a beautiful future. But then the Apostle Paul moves on and he starts talking about the power of God that is ours. I also pray we'll understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. You see, ladies and gentlemen, there was a moment in history when there was a dead body of Jesus in a borrowed tomb. And suddenly, blip, there's a pulse. There's a heartbeat. He's alive. And the apostle is saying, that same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead, that power is yours. It's in you. As you go about your everyday life. I think we need to get an authentic hope back that in our ordinary lives beautifully we can change the world we're living with a hangover of pessimism in the 18th century christians like us do you know what they believed that they could change the world in their lifetime this man william carey often thought of as the father of mission he was a shoemaker with maps of the world in his shoemaker's store and he believed in the sending out of missionaries, that the devil's kingdom, as he put it, could be beaten and God could extend his kingdom universally. He believed the world could be changed in his lifetime. This man, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, famous Baptist preacher. This preacher told the Baptist Missionary Society in 1858 that the gospel would so transform the world so that one day there would be no more war. He said, and I quote, when the gospel has its day, wars must cease to the ends of the earth. These people believed that they could change their world now. But there were other voices, good people who brought another emphasis though. People like John Nelson Darby preaching in Geneva in 1840, he started to teach that no, the world's never going to get any better. It's going to get worse until Jesus comes. So the only thing we can do is try and hang on, stay faithful, and then get out of Dodge as fast as we can. Somehow there was this view that ultimately we couldn't do anything to transform. And you end up with what I like to describe as escapology, eschatology. What does that mean? It means, well, nothing much we can do. Don't know what the world's coming to. Jesus, please come back uh, and get us out of here. Now, we should pray, even so, come Lord Jesus. But in the meantime, and I use the phrase meantime thoughtfully, in the meantime, we need to discover afresh that we can change the world. Great evangelists like D.L. Moody influenced by the teaching of Derby, started to preach, instead of preaching that the church was a lighthouse beacon people for the world, like Israel was, he started to preach that the church was a lifeboat to rescue a few people 
before we get out of here. I believe, my brothers and sisters, with all my heart, we're living under a hangover of negative thought about the future and about the present. It's time to get our hope back. Now, we're going to do something a little different now. The moment I say that here in Timberline, people immediately look nervous. Uh, Every now and again, I hear a piece of music that gets my foot tapping and gets my pulse racing and my heart stirred. So I just thought I would just really like to share some of this music. I just want you to sit back, put your Bibles and your bulletins and your sandwiches down, just put all that down. And just sit back and and, and take a breath and relax. And uh, just listen, a guy that I've ministered with in England, Matt Redman, has written a song about how we can change the world in the power of God. It just stirs me, so uh, I hope it stirs and encourages you too. Take a listen.
Could we live like this? Could we live like this? Could we live like this in the face of that situation that you've given up hope on? I don't have the end of the story in terms of what that what's going to happen in that situation specifically. But have we abandoned hope? Have we forgotten power? Have we, have we let love go as faith has grown and we've ended up with a mutated kind of discipleship? But could we live like this? Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this letter from this man who in his praying tells us what really matters. Where faith and love have become estranged, even divorced in us. Change our hearts. Help us to pray with a sense of expectation, hope, faith in your power. Particularly in situations where we've been worn out with praying. We've given up. We don't want to be disappointed anymore. Stir hope in us again. Cause us to grow, we pray, in our knowledge of God. And for any here today, Lord, who live under the curse of being told constantly that they are of no worth. In Christ, we are your inheritance. Give a revelation of that, we pray. Any here who don't know you, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you will do your work today, that this might be a junction day for them. We agree together. We agree together. In Jesus' name, everyone said, Amen. So now, Timberline family, go in the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. Knowing that the service begins now, go on. Because you can change the world. And go Broncos.